Welcome to episode four, Judicially Noticed. Uh, a few housekeeping things. We're starting a YouTube series called Judicial Reality. It's basically where we go to uh, cool places around the city, and uh, we'll also probably give basic legal advice to people on the street. Also, a shout out to Theo Vaughn. My mom randomly ran into him at a Waffle Hut, and uh, she started talking to him. He was uh, the Fighter and the Kid guest of the year, and he has his own podcast called uh, This Last Weekend. So uh, if you're listening, uh, shout out to you, Theo. Listen to his podcast if you want to hear some really funny content. And now we'd like to introduce our colleague and dear friend Matt Graham, Esquire. Uh, Our guest today is an attorney, just like James and I. He's an intellectual property lawyer. He got his start working at the Pasadena Department of Labor, dealing with ERISA cases. If you were to ask him about ERISA, he would say it's basically the uh, obese, herpes-infested underbelly of the legal system. Matt's also a diehard uh, Dodgers fan, and he's been our good friend for the past five years. Hi, well, uh, thanks for having me on the podcast. I I don't know how uh, herpes-infested ERISA is exactly, but... uh, you know, some of the, the people involved, um, some, some, some of the bad actors um, might make you feel that way sometimes. So it's like um, an itching burning. But yeah, just uh, just to correct a little bit, um, I, work, I work for the federal uh, government for the Department of Labor, um, which was in Pasadena, but it wasn't the Pasadena Department of Labor. Yeah, I worked primarily on ERISA cases for about five years. Uh, two years in law school and, and three years thereafter. have a lot of respect for a lot of the people that are still working there. And uh, yeah, it was an interesting uh, start to uh, the legal profession. Cool. So uh, yeah, let's talk about some of your beginnings. So you, you grew up in Arizona, right? Yeah, uh, Tucson, Arizona. You know, great place. I uh, still have a lot of family out there. My mom still lives out there. You played high school football, right? Uh, I did, I did. Um, like to think that it didn't give me CTE. <laughs> What's CTE? Uh, you, you didn't watch the... Uh, the concussion the, movie the with concussion Will Smith? Movie, yeah. No. Uh, it's Is a, that a good movie? It, it, it's a good movie. Uh, I highly recommend it. It's pretty enlightening. I, Because of the medical research about football, I, I really am not... Uh, a huge fan of the sport anymore, uh, to be quite honest with you. It's a, I, I think it's a public health risk for, for a lot of uh, young people these days. They so. get Parkinson's later in life. Well, they, they get CTE. Um, damage to their brain. Which I, I wish that I could remember what uh, those letters stood for, but it... Uh, and is that an ironic thing because they also <laughs> yeah. get forgetfulness? Yeah, it, it, exactly. Okay. So, so who, who knows? Uh, maybe my <laughs> high school football career uh, knocked those brain cells out of me. But it, I mean, it's, oh, you, it's a you very, play football. I, I play football. Okay, I play football. Okay, it's okay. a it's it's a serious thing. It, it causes like, essentially, from what I understand, like scarring uh, of the the nervous uh, central system in your brain, which um, wow ha- has uh, very significant long term uh, mental effects on uh, on these mm. patients. Yeah, back to the legal side of things. That's probably like the next big class action. Yeah, I I, I think it is against the NFL. Uh, the NFL, NFL, high school sports programs, yeah. the NCAA, which is like a gigantic corrupt organization that we could do a whole podcast about, a whole podcast series about. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah, and then you went to an undergrad at Occidental. Yeah, uh, Occidental uh, here in Los Angeles. Known as uh, the Obama College. <laughs> known known as some as the Obama College. Right. Uh, 
Uh, he, Obama was smart enough to get out, and uh, I believe he graduated from Columbia, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but I graduated from, I stayed. <laughs> um, yeah, Oxy's a great school. Have you guys been to the campus? Once, yeah. Okay. Yeah, East LA. If you're ever out there, check it out. It's um, you know, small liberal arts school. You know, really, I think my graduating class was like 400 people. So you kind of yeah. get to know Everybody. most of the people. Yeah. So nice. then you didn't move far when you went to Southwestern Law School in a Koreatown. That's right. That's right. I think I went to the uh, the closest law school uh, to my undergrad, and uh, my significant other Sally went to. Uh, Probably the closest tech school, <laughs> which is Caltech. Yeah, she she went to Caltech. Which that's is like, a hell of a school too. That's like a great school. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's pretty wild. When did you move to the the place in Los Feliz? Um, like the start of law school. So Los Feliz is hip. You know, I don't know if it's hipper than Silver Lake, but I think it gives it a run for its money. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely one of those other up and coming neighborhoods. There's a show sure. called like Unlivable that I think is exclusively filmed in Silver Lake and Los Feliz, where they this company goes in and they buy fixer-upper houses for, like, dirt cheap, and then they they refurbish the whole place, and then uh, give it to somebody. Wow, sign me up. Yeah. <laughs> for lots of money. Right. You know, just give it to oh. them. You still <laughs> no, want to I mean, be signed like, up, No, I mean, the people, they buy it for, like, really cheap, and then they refurbish it, and then those, like, places <laughs> end up being, like, worth, like, you know, six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars $700,000 properties. Nice. Southwestern, that's where we met, right? Um, yeah, and uh, the first day of law school, I think we had the uh, Mr. Graham incident. Do you want to talk about that? Oh, yeah, well, I mean, if, if law school? All right, so I don't, I don't know if you guys remember the first day of law school. It was intimidating. James does. I never remember much. <laughs> I remember it, and uh, you made James it especially memorable everything. because you pointed out how crazy one of our professors is. Well, look, I mean... You know, it, it's well, kind of a term. about our first class where we had the really formal professor where everybody was Mr. or Mrs. Oh, yeah. It, this professor wouldn't wouldn't tell you, wouldn't, wouldn't talk to you by your first name until you graduated the bar. Oh, but, this is where we uh, learned more about baseball than we did about the practice of law. Uh, baseball, I think we learned a little bit about boxing. That's uh, right. Boxing, uh, that's right. Karate. I think, oh, I, I learned about I, Star Form 1. I think that does ring a bell. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, so so you go in and you're 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 Mr. Rafi or Mr. Alexakis or Mr. I was Mr. Graham, you know, right. and, and he, you know, so so you're so you're getting grilled in this class. It's the first day of law school, and you're Mr. Graham on the hot seat for you know, 10 minutes, whatever. Which feels like an eternity. Yeah. But then we go to our next class. Yeah, and, and the professor was and like... you win the lottery again. Yeah, yeah, and so, so I have to... But what happened with the first with the first professor? It, it was fine, you know, it was just oh. kind of stressful, That's right? Okay. And then I'm like, okay, so I guess law were, school is a very formal were experience. Were you the first person to be called on in our section? You were like the second guess, person. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it was Miss Jackson, and then they went to Mr. Graham. Yeah. I see. I and, see. uh... <laughs> and I think and the next class, he raised his hand. Yeah, and, and, you know, the professor says, well, what's your name? And I say, Mr. Graham. And she's like, <laughs> and she's oh, like, oh how Graham. formal of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, we're in the fancy pants now. <laughs> oh, you're... Was this contract? I, it was contract. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. it sounds like it. 
So that's... Oh, yeah, we're all formal. Everyone get your suits on. So so that's how law school started for me. Um, Poor Mr. Grant. Right? <laughs> all the professors are going to be the same, but... They're ganging up on me. Clearly, that was more of a... Uh, it's just a no, like, you can't win. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But now that I've passed the bar, I can be mad. Can I, can I still call you Mr. Grant? You can, if, if you want to. You did call me Esquire uh, at the start of the show. That's, That's actually James's time. thing. And, and <laughs> rubbed off on me. James really likes to call people who are attorneys Esquires. Is that right, James? Yeah, I, I think it's neat. I think lear yeah, learning about the title, how it's, what is it? It's a person who's achieved gentleman status, not through wealth, but through their education, is how it is in like the English system. It's like... It's a rank that's like, I think in Roman J, Israel Esquire, he says it's like, yeah, it's like above gentleman, but below a knight. Sir. Yeah. Ah, so, so you're not like... You're not a knight, and you're not, but but you're a, considered like an English gentleman. I see. Uh, well, that, that makes me want to use it now. <laughs> Very good. So then, uh, after the bar exam, we <laughs> took a trip to Las Vegas, which, uh, for the most part, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but I always thought it was, uh, funny. Matt, you want to say what you did? Uh, well, I figured that, you know, Las Vegas is kind of a western town, uh, so, you know, I, I wore, uh, a bolo tie and a cowboy hat, and I think I wore cowboy boots the whole time, and, uh... Yeah, yeah it was and pretty dinner at that like really fancy uh, Gordon Ramsay restaurant. Oh, I remember yeah. your girlfriend telling me, "Yeah, I like got out like really fancy shoes and a dress, all dressed up." And then I showed up as a cowboy. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. you look like a champ, the sports announcer from the movie Anchorman. <laughs> yeah, that's about like, right. Whammy! I'm here for dinner. <laughs> yeah. You guys had, like, uh, the prime rib over at the Hooters? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. I think the next day we uh, we summited Whitney, too, which was uh, pretty ridiculous. To who's, get. who's that? Uh, Mount Whitney. Yeah. Oh, oh, no, it's not a Hooters. <laughs> yeah, you can hook up with a <laughs> no, summit Whitney without me, and I felt really left out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah Mount, Mount Whitney is quite a hike. Like, you have to, you have to bag up your poop. You and, do. Uh, you do. Yeah. Really? Yeah, they're serious about the uh, environmental impact. And then you carry it with you the whole time. Yeah. Yes, it's called a wag bag, and they when you get your permit from the uh, Forest Service, they give you two of them. Oh, you have to have Each. a permit to hike the place. Yeah, yeah. yeah they're worried about the environmental impact. This is outside of Vegas. Uh, so it's in California. It's near Bishop, if you know where that is. I don't know where that is. Okay. It's sort of near the Nevada-California border. Northeastern yeah. border? Uh, no, it's like, it's pretty close to L.A. So, actually, the, the history of L.A. in this area is, is, is amazing. The, the Department of Water and Power has a huge presence in Whitney to this day. Uh, because that's where we stole our water from the Owens River Valley. And huh. have siphoned it to Los Angeles for the last, you know, hundred years. Oh yeah, that's what like Mulholland, yeah. the, the movie Chinatown was exactly, about. Exactly, exactly. And um, and no. so it's maybe a hundred miles away from LA, but but you can it's kinda near Vegas, like it so it's and, and it's the, the tallest peak 
in the uh, continental United or contiguous United States, out like outside of Alaska, right? When you say that we've stolen it, do you mean we've stolen it to the dissatisfaction of the locals there? I'm not a water rights attorney. Uh, I think that the water rights attorneys would say that we purchased the rights. That was from, an actual class for, in our law school. From, wasn't from our, water I, I, I didn't take it, but it, it's a very yeah. interesting area of the law for those who practice it. I'm, it, sure. it, I'm sorry to, to, to digress a little bit, but it, it's just such a nuanced area. It, it reminds me of the commercial where they had a pizza lawyer. Who made, uh, who who issued his opinion on the cheese or on the type of... Oh, no, it's like putting bacon <laughs> on the pizza. I'm a water rights attorney. Is there enough uh, demand? I, I guess now there should be with the increased rarity of natural resources and especially water, but... Oh, sure. No, definitely. I uh, A good friend of mine who actually I went to, uh, to Occidental with does water rights in Arizona, and uh, it's... It's huge. I mean, it, it is it, huge. It, it's, okay. a, it's its own area of property, water rights, law. It's it's a thing, yeah. Not to be confused with maritime. Maritime? Yeah, maritime law. Maritime uh, law, which is the whole other kind of water. That's right. With, it's, with yeah, it's a the law of the sea. Yeah. <laughs> and it's mostly lost cargo. Yeah. So... Please continue your story about the LADWP. Oh well, so so Whitney. Um, I mean, it's a huge mountain. It um, you know. It, the, how much of it was hiking, and how much of it was was there actually climbing involved? No, it's it's something that I think anybody can do. Um, it's just you you reach once you get above like fourteen thousand feet. It, the elevation affects a lot of people, so it affected me. Breathing uh, uh, becomes like more difficult. Uh, I, it kind of just you gives me a headache. Headache. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, I don't know. Um, but yeah, uh, William Mulholland was a you know ruthless capitalist who you know turned neighbors against each other, and there were like it, it's an interesting history. Like people blew up his. Uh, yeah, his, his 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 canal that he built with dynamite multiple times because they hated him so much. Like, I think he threatened people like physically. You know, it's like a very yeah, it's a pretty well done. If you watch the yeah. show at Drunk History, they do a pretty good one where Jack Black plays Mole Holland. Yeah, and he still got his name attached yeah. to uh, to the highway and the. It makes me always wonder, you know, when you hear about these developers and people who really create a lasting impact. Well, Where now all this stuff about Getty is coming out. You got that show, you got you that movie, All the Money in the World, where they took Kevin Spacey off the movie and uh, replaced him with Christopher Plummer and reshot like pretty much the whole movie. And then there's another show on uh, FX now about called Trust that's all about the Gettys. What really Plummer. disturbs me about the Getty, and it, this doesn't have to, anything to do with Getty himself, but rather the entity that manages the trust, uh, the reason why Google Images no longer has a view image button when you search for an image is because Getty Images sued Google for that reason. And Google, as part of a settlement with them, agreed and stipulated to the removal of the view image button. Ergo, when you search for an image on Google, you now have to click on the image and be taken to the website where the image appears, as opposed to having the ability to merely click on view image and get the image right there then and there. Oh, great. So, so, so it kind of just leads to uh, giving yourself a computer virus. 
It could. It very <laughs> much could. And it could even be in the form of just a, a big annoyance of having to find the image on this stupid, any old website that's riddled with ads and things, sure. other things that you may not want to see. Pop-ups. And, exactly. And, and so it, this was only, I mean, Getty Images really only had standing to sue on behalf of their own images, but now it universally applies all over Google Images. So that's what happened to the view image button. It's the death of, yeah, that should be another podcast, the death of the view image button. It, it really should I, I would want to listen to that, actually. That would be a great podcast. You can make that <laughs> one pretty funny, too, if you had, like, porn sites and stuff. <laughs> and then uh, also at the same time, after you uh, summited Whitney, uh, you immediately went to work for uh, the Department of Labor. Yeah, but, that, that's right, that's right. Um, do you want to give people like a background on basically what ERISA is? Yeah, so ERISA stands for the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. Um, very formal name. Uh, it's a federal law from the 1970s that uh, regulates um, employee benefit plans. Uh, for government employees, or for everyone. No, no uh, actually... Explicitly not for government employees. Uh, it 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 uh, it um, it excludes governmental entities from it. It it only uh, applies to uh, private businesses uh, that offer uh, plans for their employees. And so the okay. idea is that you know in America in America you don't have to offer retirement savings or health care benefits. Correct. Uh, to your employees. But if you do, you have to abide by uh, certain laws and regulations related to uh, providing those benefits. And that's ERISA. And that's, what er that's where ERISA comes in. Got it. And so it's, um, I, I, when I worked for the government, uh, really there's two areas when people that practice ERISA kind of think about it. Uh, one is like from the tax perspective, and making sure that the plan is a qualified plan for tax reasons, right? Uh, and then there's, um, and that's its own thing. And then there's what I did, which was Title I of the statute, uh, which has to do with the fiduciary obligations that the people that are running the employee benefit plans have to the, you know, the participants and beneficiaries of the plans. So... And the violation of those fiduciary duties. Yeah, and, and that's where you can get into uh, to trouble. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so, I mean... It, so what is it, like CEOs stealing from their employees' 401ks? Uh, sometimes. Uh, sometimes it's um, investing those plan assets on behalf of the plan in, a, in an entity that you own. Which is or a like when blatant we're... conflict of interest. Yeah, and, uh, you know, or... Or in an entity that you know a friend or a family right. owner owns, um, that you know, or, or providing loans from the plan to you know family members and never collecting wow. on those loans. Wow. Um, you know. And getting away with that? There's no auditing process involved. It's up to the employees to. Well. Catch that. <laughs> um, I mean, that's that's one of the reasons I think like. Well, first of all, the participants themselves would have standing to sue for that. Um, but, you know, a lot of them don't. And so part of the statute allows the federal government 
to stand in the shoes of the participants and say, hey, wait a minute, you can't do this. You're violating these these obligations that you have to your employees. Right. Uh, we're going to sue for you. And the recovery doesn't go to the government. It goes back into the plan, uh, and it goes back to the employees that, that were harmed. And how does the government find out that these violations are occurring? Does it always require a whistleblower, or is every retirement plan monitored by a third party or auditor of some sort to ensure compliance and to catch these outliers? Yeah. Um, I hope so, they're outliers. I hope that this doesn't happen. Sure. As often as um, I think, well, so I think there's two answers to your question. Uh, one, uh, based on the size of a plan, they do have to have, you know, if it's a pension plan, uh, they can, in, in certain circumstances, uh, be required to have a third-party auditor look at their plan, right? Uh, that wouldn't necessarily uh, necessitate the like correcting poor behavior by the plan fiduciaries. It would just make them aware of that behavior, right? Uh, it would also let other fiduciaries in the plan become aware of It's a deterrent. Of it's a great deterrent. I, I would think so. Um, some auditors are better than others. Um, One would hope that but, they're always independent also. Uh, typically, yeah, they, okay. they have to be a third-party auditor. But uh, the second part of your question, I think, has to go with, or it, it, it asks, how does the government target these cases? Which I wouldn't be able to answer that question um, just because it's, you know, it, you know, like, I, I used to work for the government. And I, it's a trade I'm, secret. I, I'm, I'm, pro I'm prohibited from, from right. saying that. But, right. but they do target um, they, they, they do target, and if there are people out there that are thinking that it would be easy to steal from their employee benefit plan or, you know, make these types of uh, investments or loans or um, really whatever. about that investment in a movie? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, invest in a movie, invest in a play, was that the, the producers? Um you know, the the federal government does um, monitor does that just do uh, that type of uh, enforcement. So good. Yeah, it's it was interesting work, and I think for me the best part of working there was knowing that the money went back to the employees that were hurt. Right, mm -hmm. like the money, like from a, a defunct, you know. Um, uh, house building business in LA mm -hmm. that I worked on uh, you know when they went bankrupt uh, we were able to monitor that and get their employees paid out uh, and so you had these like 60 or 70 year old people who were owed you know in the hundreds of thousands of dollars weren't left broke and so it wasn't like you know you're just trying to get you know, fees or fines paid back to the government, but you're actually affecting people's lives and their and helping the victims. Yeah. You're like Robin Hood. Yeah. Yeah. Well, except for the opposite, because Robin Hood stole from the rich and he gave to the poor. This is like preventing the rich from stealing from the poor. <laughs> In the first place. Yeah. Right. Not even preventing, sometimes outright reversing theft that's already occurred. Yeah. 
So um, it, it was a good experience. Do you want to talk about how you transitioned from working at the Department of Labor to uh, your current position as an intellectual properties lawyer? Um, yeah, I mean, it was, I mean, any government job into private practice, I imagine, is, uh, you know, can be a, a bit of a, you know, a, a different animal altogether, right? Um, but, yeah, I, you know, I interned uh, for several attorneys uh, in law school who, when they started um, their small law firm, they, you know, they asked me to, uh, to join them as their associate, so I agreed, and, you know, I've been doing intellectual property ever since, uh, mostly trademark uh, and copyright issues, um, but, you know, I mean, it's all federal uh, court for the most part, uh, and it's, you know, investigating and looking at these, you know, relatively complex issues, although the issues are different, the, the work is, you know, similar in some extent, so even though, though the law is substantively uh, different, you know, I think that any work experience that you have uh, in any legal field will help you, you know, uh, if, if you want to leave that field and, and go astray, it's not completely lost. So if you want to do personal injury and you want to leave that and do, you know, maritime law, <laughs> uh, I'm sure that there's some crossover there as well. Right, do you want to talk about what your typical day-to-day -day is like? Are you in court almost every day? Um, no. No. I'm only really in court if we have a hearing date, which, you know, can be a couple times a month to once a month to, you know, we could have a month where I'm not in court at all. Okay. But, I mean, that said, uh, going to court's kind of fun. It can be kind of intimidating. What I like about court the most, my favorite thing, so you go, and, and um, to be honest with you, I've never been in state court. So I only know the federal side of it. Um, I don't even think I've been in a state court. Well, house it's not glamorous at all. That's <laughs> actually a good thing. That so there's a lot of similarities, but sure, I, I bet federal courts are funded much better than state courts are. <laughs> have you been to the new uh, courthouse? I have Street? not, but I do remember you speaking fondly of it. You should go. It's yeah, really it's pretty cool. It's really a nice building. It's beautiful. Um, his security is tight. You got to be prepared to take off your belt and, and it's your pants. It's worse than the airport. It really is. Is it really? Well, because the uh, the U.S. Marshals are in charge of uh, you know the the security there, uh, right? as opposed to county uh, and yeah, sheriffs. state court. You just step so, through the metal detector. Uh, it's and county sheriffs in state court, right? So so for yeah. this, you got to take out all the electronics in your bag and you put them in separately. Uh, you got to take off your shoes, your belt, your jacket. And so if you have like a computer and, you know, hard drives and stuff. Or if you have big with... file boxes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it so and they run those through individually through this little like uh, x-ray machine. And then uh, and then you got to go through and they do that one by one. So like you have to get there like, I don't know, I always show up like an hour early because getting through that metal detector. I mean, if, if there's a line of like 20 people, that could be like five minutes a person. That's... Mm -hmm. You know, it's serious time. Yeah, it's a lot of yeah. time. 
Um, you can miss your court appearance, and then you're yeah, then you're screwed. But but anyways, what what I love about it is you go there, and you know you you prepare, and you know you've researched your issues and your facts, and you 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 have your your binders, and you're you're ready to go, and uh, and usually you get there. And you, you sit and you wait and you listen to these other attorneys, you know, talk about such different cases that it's like, it, it's almost, it, it, for me, it's amusing. I, um... <laughs> and so this judge hears... They, they'll have a, a, a usually uh, most federal judges will have one day a week in their calendar, sometimes two, but usually one, and it's usually on a Friday or a Monday. That's their motion hearing date, right? Okay. So they'll hear everything from, you know, uh, the parties, for whatever reason, are showing up to, uh, you know, settle their case and have some sort of final disposition of the matter, which is really fast and easy, um, you know, to people that are doing their final pretrial conference, which usually takes a really long time, or, you know... Uh, a summary judgment hearing, which can be like an hour or more, and so, uh, so, so you'll you'll sit there and you'll wait and you'll wait and you'll hear all these other cases and it's you know because because you won't intimately know the details of the case because mm -hmm. they're just doing oral argument and the judge is usually asking them very specific legal questions. But I um I don't know I I um one of the things I wish I did in law school was go to the federal courthouse and just listen to cases or watch a trial. Just watch the whole thing. Um, I think that that would be tremendously helpful uh, to your education. Very, very much so. And just, just seeing how other people do it and you can kind of tell who's doing a good job and who's not doing a good job and who's prepared and who isn't and mm -hmm. You know, which attorneys are over their head and which are, you know, really even keel. And uh, I, I think anybody that is either interested in, is not doing litigation now that wants to get into it, or uh, anybody in law school that thinks that they might be interested in litigation, uh, should just, you know, find a, a federal judge and go to their hearing day. And, and, and usually the judges split it between their civil calendar, and their criminal calendar. And so... So these say, judges hear everything? I mean... Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's their oh, motion yeah. day, and that's like your only day. Like you said, it's usually a Monday or a Friday, but, but, and they'll hear anything civil or criminal. Yeah. The reason I'm asking is you have certain judges that only hear contracts cases, and certain judges no. only hear... You don't have no. them in the Fed. No. So in the state, it's it's separate, but in the Fed, they specialize all over the place, or they don't specialize, they just hear anything. Right, they, you don't they have, they like, the everything. PI hub. Yeah. What's that? You don't have the personal injury right. hub like that's, you do in the That's state. the other... So they, they just know every... They, are these judges just so experienced that they can hear all... Well, I think that that's one of the reasons why there's such, like, prestige affiliated with, like, people out of law school, their first, like, five years out of law school trying to get a federal clerkship. Mm -hmm. Because if you have a federal clerkship, it means that you have to research very, very detailed questions about any aspects of the law. Any aspect of federal or even state law that goes into federal court uh, through diversity, right. you could hear that case. And you probably have to work on 
a multitude of cases in 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 very like any anything from you know trademarks, copyrights, patents to things like ERISA to things like maritime law is hell is heard in the federal court right. to things like you know I mean. Yeah, it could I be mean, like, like criminal, it, like narcotics possession. It, it could be anything. Mm. Yeah, and it's uh, it, it's really, you know, yeah, the and that's why these federal judges. I mean, it's a big deal. Uh, you hear about these Trump appointees. Did you see the Trump appointee that couldn't tell uh, the Judiciary Committee, the Senate Judiciary Committee, what a motion in limine was? Seriously, he didn't know what a motion in limine was. Wow. And it's like. You want to be a federal judge, and you don't know what a motion, what what a Daubert motion is, or Daubert as it's called in right. some courts. To qualify no. your expert, it's like really. Um, well, as a trial judge, you're obviously going to have witnesses. Yes. Can you tell me what the uh, Daubert standard is? Uh, Senator Kennedy, I, I don't have that uh, readily at, uh, at my disposal, uh, but I would be happy to take a, a closer look at that. Okay. That, that, that is not something that I've had to okay. uh, contend with. Um, do you know what a motion in limine is? Uh, yes, I haven't. Um, I'm, I'm, again, my uh, background is not uh, in litigation as, as uh, when I was replying to uh, Chairman Grassley. Um, I haven't had to, um, again, do a deep dive, and I under, and I and I understand, and and I appreciate this this line of questioning. I understand uh, the challenge that would be ahead of me if I were fortunate enough to become a district court judge. I understand that um, that the path that many successful district court judges have taken has been a different one than I have taken. Mm -hmm. Just for the record, do you know what a motion in limine is? I would probably not be able to give you a good definition okay. right here at the, ta at the uh, okay. table. For our listeners, motion in limine is just when you go to the sidebar and... Uh, no, it's actually, so, you file formal motions with the court on ev evidentiary issues. Right. It's but not like a, in you go effect, to a 402 hearing. In effect, it's a, a private meeting with, with the judge. Well, yes. Well, it, it can it's, be... But in state court generally it is generally you show up for your motion limine hearing that you have all the uh, motions all the and all the oppositions and the judge sits there and reads it and then tells you what evidence is and is not coming in and that's how it works in like mm, I'd say like most of the personal injury courts yeah well some judges probably do it different but for the most part I think that's how it's done so in limine. Uh, it's a Latin word that means at the start or on the threshold, uh -huh. right? And so when you you file a motion in limine, and in federal court, usually in your scheduling order, you know, which sets out all the dates that are going to happen in the litigation, and usually in the scheduling order, you'll have a date that says this is when the motions in limine are due. And what you're trying to do with a motion in limine is to exclude evidence that your opponent wants to bring at trial. And you, you can exclude it for a bunch of different reasons, right? You can exclude it because it's irrelevant, right? It's hearsay. Uh, it, it, because it's hearsay. You could, you could exclude it because its probative value is substantially outweighed by its prejudice right. to the jury, right? Uh, or if somebody is offering expert testimony, 
they have to meet a um, the, the heightened uh, Daubert standard uh, in order to bring in the expert testimony, which means that they have to be qualified as an expert. And they're Definitely. If they're citing materials, they have to be peer-reviewed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it... it, it what it does is that it allows the court to um, make a determination on the evidence that the parties uh, basically just think is, and this is my favorite word that I learned in court, bushwa, B-U-S-H-W-A. And uh, I, I'll, I'll accredit uh, Judge William Keller for using this word uh, probably five times in one day, and it means baloney, <laughs> or at least that's what he said. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, um, yeah, motions and limiting. So these Trump appointees, it, that, is this at, at the appellate level? Is it? Uh, that one I want to say was a, uh, a, it was one of the districts, a district judge in Texas, which means that he would hear trials. Like, he would, he would be the judicial officer in front of a trial, like, vested with the power of ruling on all of these things right. that he knows nothing about. The, yeah, the, the judiciary, the, yeah, the judiciary is every single one appointed by the president of the United States and confirmed by the Senate. All of them, all every of them. single, uh, every single district judge, every single, and yeah, and and you know who appointed them. I almost like by the what they say in court, you can kind of guess like, oh yeah, that. That's a that, Bush that, guy. That, that's, that's, a Clinton, guy. that's a Clinton appointee. That's an Obama appointee. That's a Bush guy. Wow. Yeah. Like, you, you can guess. Sometimes you'll be wrong. But, and you can look it up. There must be so many of them. It's... There's not. I, I want to say there's 29 in the Central District of California. 29 judges. District judges. for Is it 29 or 39? We can look it up. Yeah. So all over the country. Oh, I think it's 29. All over the country, how many of them are there? A couple thousand, right? Yeah, but they have lifetime appointments. So, you know, if, if one I of them, see. like, kicks the bucket or retires, then, then you can so bring So the president is not always busy picking them because it's not, they don't... No, they don't, like, clear out all, you know, thousand of them I see. at once. Yeah, but here's, here's the problem, all right, and I'll talk politically. So that entire courthouse only has 29 judges? Yeah, something like that. Wow. Go ahead. The political. Yeah. So, so, so the problem politically, at least for me, because um, you know, I I think that Donald Trump is doing a relatively poor job uh, as our chief executive. Um, but the the problem for me, at least, and maybe for some other people that are listening to this, is that uh, the Senate, in the last two years of President Obama's uh, presidency failed to uh to, to failed to confirm any of his appointments including even his supreme court forget about the supreme court district courts throughout the country there are more open seats right now than ever before does that mean and that means that Trump, judges to hear well it means that that the dockets uh, a lot of judges dockets are overloaded sure mm -hmm. but it also means Trump that president Trump has more like has an unprecedented amount of appointees that he can just throw into in, into lifetime appointments, okay, 
And how many is it? Is it a couple hundred, you think? Or I, I'm sure that there. Are, you you could look it up on Politico. You know, the New York Times has reported on this. You know, yeah. every time there's a, an, a judicial appointment. And but yeah, the hun- hundreds for sure. And, and the president knows individually all of these judges, or, or is advised by people that know. Yeah. I'm just curious. Like, do each of these federal judges, these 29 that are in the court where you practice, do they all personally know the presidents? Who appointed them? Um, I'm sure that they've met the president who's appointed them. A lot of them are uh, a lot f- of them. former former federal att- like U.S. attorneys, which is also a position that is appointed by the president. Mm-hmm. Um, a I lot was actually of them- listening to Chemerinsky, and he was saying that like on the Supreme Court, I think none of them have actually practiced law. They all just were like clerkships, and then they became professor. Yeah, professors out of like top universities. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, partners at big firms that like some. Sometimes they have work uh, in various state courts, mm-hmm. um, but it means that there was some sort of vetting process within the presidency. I don't know. You want to talk about your life and going like back and forth from yeah, like yeah. LA to Jersey. Um, yeah, currently in a long-distance relationship, um, and we recently got a dog, a, uh, five-pound, uh, Pomeranian, uh, that's living in New Jersey now, uh, with, you still with my cats? lady friend. I, I have the cat, and she has the dog, um, but, yeah, hopefully, uh, you know, she's, um, uh, fin- finishing up a postdoctoral fellowship, uh, out of Princeton University, so uh, heading back and forth to New Jersey at least once a month, and she's heading to LA about the same. So, so do you want to explain little... what she does in layman's terms? Oh, she uh, so she uh, is a geophysicist who blows up minerals with guns and lasers <laughs> and X-rays them to watch the shock wave move through the minerals that she's blowing up uh, and takes data from it in real time, uh, nanosecond speed, and uh, analyzes it and uh, writes about it. <laughs> what are the uh, applications of, of, the, of these data? Is it for uh, ecological reasons, for, for, for weapons manufacturing? For Well, so from what she tells me, so she's in the geophysics department, which they study it through the lens of impact events on on Earth or other planets. Okay. So you know meteorites hitting things and and the phase transformations that occur during those really really high pressure and temperature impact events. Uh, but her research, I know, is funded through the National Nuclear. Um, it's the NNSA, the National Nuclear Security Administration, uh, which, you know, there, there is weapons uh, applications to the, uh, the work. So I think the answer is both ecological and weapons. <laughs> wow, I, I, I totally <laughs> randomly asked those yeah, two. That's but. right, that's right. <laughs> she's not doing really this funny. anywhere. She's at Princeton. Right? That's, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Where Albert Einstein taught yeah, uh, does they, he still teach there? <laughs> I think so. I think you can take his class. <laughs> anyway, so hopefully yeah, she, she work with like dinosaur bones next to her office. Oh my god, she they 
Princeton is a crazy school. It's a, a beautiful school. Like, when I went, you know, when I visit the campus, it's like, wow, why didn't I just apply to Princeton? And, like, if I got in, it would be amazing. It's a beautiful, I mean, it looks like Hogwarts. That's it. Thanks, Matt, for coming on this show. Sure, thank We're you. We're now thank available you. on all podcasting streaming services, so please drop us a like, a comment, and a review. And, uh, yeah, we'll give you a shout-out on the podcast. So uh, thank you. This has been Judicially Noticed, Episode 4. We out. <laughs>